Hi there, River's Edge. Matt Deason here. We had an amazing morning as a church in which we continued in our series, Prayer and Prophecy. And what we did this morning was to start uh, the first teaching in a two-part teaching on spiritual warfare. And we lost the podcast recording, so what I'm going to do is kind of re-record the gist of what we talked about uh, for your benefit. And so as we have been progressing in our series, you know if you've been with us the last few weeks that we spent time studying the Holy Spirit and the stuff that the Spirit does, but today we are shifting focus a bit and exploring something that uh, we think is really important. As we engage in life with God and contemplate what God is up to in the world and in our lives, we cannot ignore the fact that there are other players involved and that the reality of spiritual warfare ought to shape our worldview and, of course, our prayers as well. And I realize as we step into this topic, that we are entering an area of extreme skepticism in our culture. We are preconditioned as postmodern Western thinkers to write off and dismiss any talk of conscious spiritual beings at work in the world. But what I want us to do this morning is catch a glimpse cover to cover of what the Bible has to say about spiritual warfare and our place in it. And whenever we want to understand a theme that runs throughout the scripture cover to cover, we typically start in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 3 verse 1 and we'll get started. This is roughly page 3 of your Bibles. In the first two chapters, we get a glimpse of God rescuing and ordering a world which Adam and Eve are then created and brought into. And throughout the creation narrative, the refrain time and time again is, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. And finally, it is very good. And chapter two ends with Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, naked and unashamed. But... Everything is about to change. We pick up in Genesis 3, verse 1. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, 
There is way more going on in this account than we have time to unpack, but here's what I want us to notice. A creature has just entered the garden, which we don't know much about. And this creature has just twisted the words of God in such a way that Adam and Eve have been seduced into doing the one thing that God asked them not to do. In a garden full of yeses, this creature pointed out the one no and then questions God's word and questions God's goodness. And Adam and Eve take the bait. And from this moment forward, there is a radical shift in humanity's relationship with God. From this moment forward, we are more naturally aligned with the serpent and become natural enemies of God. And as we do that and the scriptures unfold, we learn more about the consequences of this choice and the true enemy of God who set it all in motion. What we discover Later on in the scriptures is that the serpent in the garden is actually Satan, who doesn't have a, a proper name per se, but is simply referred to as the enemy or the adversary. Even Satan or the devil are not proper names, but refer to this being who is antagonistic toward God and his purposes. This is some of what the scriptures have to say says, Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. He is the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, as contrasted with Jesus, who has come to give us life. Additionally, we're told that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is Genesis language that's being used. And in fact, Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, Jesus says, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. And by most estimates, the beginning that's referred to in these verses uh, for the adversary actually predates the beginning of Adam and Eve, meaning that the serpent wasn't created in Genesis 3. It's not that God made the serpent or whatever the serpent represents, and then 15 minutes later, he crawls over to tempt Adam and Eve. But rather, what appears to have happened is that in Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth, we're told, verse 2 of your Bibles, was formless and empty, or some of your translations say formless and void, which in Hebrew is a tohu vavohu. And, and what that would have meant in the Hebrew mind was chaotic and useless. The earth was chaotic and useless. And in Hebrew thinking, the dark and disordered place, the chaotic place, was the place of evil which God needed to subdue. And so God begins advancing ordered beauty into that chaos, and it is out of that chaos that the serpent emerges, apparently attempting to thwart God's good plans and throw creation back into disorder. But here's the point. God created humanity in the midst of a cosmic war zone. 
In fact, this battle may have been raging on for eons before God set out to create physical beings who would partner with him in bringing shalom and beauty and order and peace into a world of chaos and darkness. Humanity was born on the battlefield and charged with advancing God's good purposes within it. We were to be God's allies in this war, his representatives and image bearers into the physical, visible realm. And by aligning ourselves with the enemy, we have ourselves become enemies of God. And to be clear... This battle is not the yin and the yang, for those of you who are familiar with uh, those concepts. It is not two equal and opposite forces opposing one another. God is king over all creation. He is the uncreated, the eternal, and he is far more powerful than the adversary. And yet, in this brief time and place, the adversary has incredible sway and influence over humanity. So much so that the scriptures refer to him as the God of this age and the ruler of this world. Which if I'm reading through the scriptures, that that actually sounds like someone with a lot of influence. In fact, the scriptures say that multitudes of people don't see God at all because, quote, the God of this age has blinded them. This is war, and this presents a problem. From Genesis 3 forward, the enemy and the lesser spiritual beings who have aligned with him in rebellion against God create a problem that must be dealt with, which raises the question, what is God going to do about it? And the answer, of course, lies right here in Genesis 3. If you still have your Bible open, go ahead and skip down with me to verse 13. It says this. This is the aftermath of the rebellion. It says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me or tricked me or blinded me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, This is his announcement to the enemy. It says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And pay attention here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Now, there is a level of debate as to just what this refers to. But the theory that makes most sense to me is that the offspring of the serpent refers to other conscious spiritual beings which will fall in line with his plan. And the offspring of Eve, one might naturally assume, is all of humanity. And of course, there's an element of truth to that because from this point forward, there will be enmity between humanity and the powers of darkness. But in this specific instance, the offspring or seed of Eve is referring to one single descendant of Eve, 
as the next line makes clear. The next line says this. It says, He, male singular offspring, will crush your head, Satan. He will deal you a death blow, and you will strike his heel, or you you will injure or wound, or some commentators even say kill him in the process. God has just announced the outcome of the war in advance. A single male human descendant of Eve will bring you to an end. And so the battle rages on with humanity caught in the middle, but now there's hope. And so throughout the struggle of the Old Testament, God gives his people reasons to hope for the future, for a day when evil will finally be done away with. But it's clear from the storyline that the battle is in full swing. And when we think of the Old Testament, or or I'll say this, when I think of the Old Testament, typically what I think of is the physical struggle between Israel and other nations, or even uh, their internal struggle with sin and idolatry. But we have to remember that all of this takes place with Genesis 3 and, and the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent as the backdrop. And when you dig a little deeper, you start to recognize that Israel is struggling not to worship other gods or lesser spiritual beings like Molech and Baal and Chemosh and these evil figures. Um, and, And the prophets seem to describe this idolatry in a way that is complex and layered. Uh, There is no power in these statues, they say. These statues are made of of wood and stone. They can't hear you. They cannot answer your prayers. And yet, there is some sort of real power behind them that seeks to rip Israel and humanity away from worshiping the Creator God. Call them demons or little g gods or spiritual forces of evil or or whichever uh, biblical language resonates with you. Uh, But in fact, uh, the first command that they were given as a people is this. They're told, you shall have no other gods, lowercase g, before me, which is actually a, a reference to lesser spiritual beings that are in rebellion against the creator God. And so there's this upfront and obvious struggle that Israel is engaged in with foreign nations who are following these lesser spiritual powers. Uh, And then there's this internal struggle with sin and worshiping foreign gods. And that's uh, like the Old Testament summed up in two sentences. But then uh, along the way, every once in a while, like every 200 pages or so, you get these unique glimpses behind the scenes into this spiritual battle that is unfolding. And as the curtain gets uh, peeled back, so to speak, you get these bizarre passages that honestly, we just don't really know what to do with. One of the classic examples is the book of Job, which opens with this account. This is in Job chapter 1. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, because apparently that's what they do, and Satan also came with them. Okay, that's 
weird. And, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And, and from that point forward, they engage in this dialogue together, and Job is kind of caught in the middle. And if you want to know the rest of the story, then read your Bibles. Uh, but we, we don't really know what to do with that. It's, it's a bizarre scene. Uh, another well-known example is in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel is fasting and praying, and he says this, At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks, I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. He, he's fasting before the Lord. But then uh, an angel appears to him three weeks later and says this. It says, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling, because apparently that's what you do when you see an angel. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them, in answer to your prayers. But the prince of Persia, this is where it gets weird, the prince of, Pers the, of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. The, these are spiritual beings that he's talking about. Then Michael one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained with the king of Persia. Wait, wait, what? God sent an angel, a demonic spiritual being called the prince of Persia, resisted, fought, and detained him until reinforcements arrived? And, and all of that is happening in, in a realm and a place that we can't really grasp or understand. Okay, I mean, what do we do with that? Because when I keep praying for something and nothing happens, I just assume that God is uninterested in answering my prayers. And, and I typically get bored and go do something else. Are you telling me that this could be going on behind the scenes while I pray? That my prayers might be delayed or unanswered because of a spiritual being ruling over the territory that I live in? I mean, I don't know what to do with this stuff. But notice that for millennia, the battle is raging on, often behind the scenes, until one day a man named Jesus shows up on the scene, a singular male descendant of Eve who is going to change the tide of war forever. And Jesus is baptized by John and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And then the scriptures say that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the, what? The devil, 
or the adversary or the God of this age. And Jesus takes him head on. And what follows isn't just a fasting exercise in the desert. It is a decisive clash of kingdoms in which Jesus must face the lies and temptations that humanity has fallen victim to time and time again. But unlike us, he prevails. He emerges victorious from the desert, and what follows is a few action-packed years of ministry that can be summarized in this way. This is from Acts. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all of those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And then all throughout his ministry, Jesus is casting out demons and confronting demonic powers in more verses than we even have time to quote. And in the modern West, we kind of skim over this stuff and think, well, that's weird. I'm not sure we really believe in those things nowadays. I I guess this is kind of outdated. Or, Or maybe this is just kind of a figure of speech. But then you keep getting these summation sentences that force us to rethink our own skepticism. Like 1 John chapter 3, where it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to. And then then there's all sorts of ways that we could finish that sentence, right? I'm guessing each one of us would fill in that blank in a slightly different way. But John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That was was the very purpose that Jesus came to us, to lead us from a place of defeat to a place of victory as a redeemed people. And in his most decisive act of victory, Jesus went to the cross. And this is some of the language that the scriptures use to describe what happened there. Listen to this. It says, When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this part. And having disarmed the powers and authorities or the demonic beings, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The battle still rages on, but the advantage has shifted. That There was a disarming act that put the powers of darkness in retreat and clothed the sons and daughters of God in victory. But the battle is not over yet. The war is not finished. In fact, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, this is Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If the war was over, Paul would not tell you to put on armor, okay? 
That's not what you wear when you're sipping margaritas on the beach. Paul is saying, wake up. You are in the middle of a war zone and you need to prepare yourself as if that were the case. Jesus has the victory in hand. The enemy is retreating as the kingdom of God advances. But if you think for a second that he's already surrendered, then you are going to be stunned by the ferocity of his resistance. Our enemy is a cornered snake, but in desperation, he fights on. To frame this in terms of analogy, of imperfect analogy, uh, what Jesus did at the cross, in a sense, was to take the beach at Normandy. And it was an awful, bloody struggle, but the beachhead was won. And with it, the first domino was tipped. From the cross forward, it is a one-way street to victory. The access powers will fall, so to speak, and they probably know it. The tide of the war has shifted, and the Allies will fight from a position and a posture of victory from Normandy forward. The conclusion of the war is secured. The writing is on the wall. But was D-Day the end of the war? Absolutely not. There were still a thousand hills to be taken and hundreds of thousands of casualties and atrocities committed against civilians and countless battles to be fought and won. It's still war and we live in the gap between D-Day and V-E Day or between the beach at Normandy and the fall, the final fall of the Nazi powers. We live in the tension between victory won on the cross and victory fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the meantime, Paul says, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's saying, wake up, be alert. This is war. And as you wrestle with the reality of evil and the goodness of God, this has to factor in. Are you blaming God for every shot that you take? Or are you aware that you live in a world at war? And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but as you wrestle with the reality of divorce and death and cancer and, and public shootings and miscarriage and murder, may you remember that you were born on the battlefield and may you remember who your real enemy is. What does Paul say? He says, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against ISIS or Kim Jong-il or Russian operatives or the Democrats or the Republicans or your ex-boyfriend, okay? They aren't your true enemy. And, and at this point, you're thinking, like, really? Like, really, Matt? Because it feels like they are. 
And Paul is saying, no, wake up to the nature of the reality that you live in. The people who you are most tempted to hate are the very people who most need your prayers. Because odds are, ex-boyfriends aside, that they are likely under the influence of your real enemy. And their deepest desire, their deepest need, is not death, but liberation. The story of the advance of the kingdom of God is the story of good overtaking evil and turning darkness to light. It is the redeeming of creation back to the creator God, one block at a time, one conversation at a time, one cubicle at a time, prayer by prayer, house by house, brick by brick. So as you engage in life with God, or just life, would you remember who your real enemy is? And don't be surprised when you get shot at. Jesus says this. He says, I came. This is his his self-description. He says, I came to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Meaning that you were once a part of the dominion of darkness. You were under the sway and power and control of the God of this age. And when you came to Jesus, you switched sides in this battle and aligned yourself as as an enemy of the adversary, if that makes sense. And so to put that in the context of war, you were once a citizen or even a soldier under the power of the Nazi government, compliant and and complicit in their system and in their schemes. But essentially, you went from being sort of a citizen or a cog in their machine or even a co-conspirator to putting on a U.S. Army uniform and strolling through the streets of of Nazi-controlled Berlin. Would it be any surprise at that point if you were to be shot at? Absolutely not. But that's how we act as Christians. Calamity comes. Demonic opposition comes. Stuff goes wrong. And we act stunned. In fact, in most cases, we're tempted to raise our fists at God and question whether or not He really loves us at all. I I mean, seriously, why would we do that? Because no one ever told us that we live in a world at war. And in my experience, the greater the hill you try to take for the kingdom, the more shots are going to get fired. The problem is that we attempt to do something great for the kingdom And then we're afraid to ask for prayer because we think we shouldn't be struggling. Really? If you weren't important, you wouldn't be getting shot at. 
If you had no ability to advance the kingdom of God, then the enemy wouldn't oppose you at all. He would just let you flail around on your own. But if you have potential and and you're wearing the right uniform, so to speak, and you're advancing the kingdom, then you should expect and anticipate resistance in that. In fact, you would be naive not to. And you can take heart. God is greater than anything we will ever face. Jesus has set victory in motion. It's in his hands. In fact, it says that after the striking of his heel, so to speak, that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And we typically brush over this this next section here. But what's it say? It says, far above... All rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. This is spiritual warfare language. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Jesus is seated in a place of victory on our behalf. And we're told that one day there will be complete and total victory. That one day every ounce of evil will be purged from the world. And one day the war will be over. The scriptures end with a future vision of Satan and his accomplices and even death itself being swallowed up in victory as God shows up to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. This is Genesis 1 and 2 reimagined. We know the end of the story. We know that the victory of Jesus now in hand will one day be a reality for all of creation. But in the meantime, we fight on. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith, not from a place of fear or discouragement or anxiety, but from a place of privilege and momentum and blessing and victory and redemption and righteousness, we fight on. And we're going to talk more about the specifics of this fight next week in in greater detail. What does it look like um, in the trenches, so to speak? How do we engage in this battle day in and day out? But as we close this week, I I just want to read this passage of scripture over you. These are Paul's words for followers of Jesus as they engage in the struggle of a world at war. This is Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, 
put on the full armor of God so that when, not if, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. I think that's a good place for us to end. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrestle in our skepticism with the reality that the scriptures reveal to us, Would you be the one to come near God? Would you be the one to open our eyes and and set us free in a sense to see the world as it actually is, not as we've imagined it to be, not as culture has told us it is, but as it truly exists. And so for those of us who approach this topic with um, cynicism or skepticism, God, would you, would you open our eyes and, and make us soft-hearted toward the, the reality that the scriptures portray? God, for those of us who um, feel like we don't know nearly enough about this or are coming into the subject with, with a feeling of, of inadequacy or maybe even ignorance, God, would you open our eyes to what it is that you want us to see? And God, for those of us who are hurting, for those of us who who are taking shots, would you be the one to come near and to heal and to restore and to strengthen your people for what lies ahead? As we come face to face uh, with, with the work and power of the God of this age, would you whisper to us, not just about the call to confront it, but about the Savior who has conquered it. Father, may we be woken up to the reality of this war and simultaneously grow in an appreciation of the victory that you've won and the power that you have. God, the more we learn about those who oppose you, the more we see just how magnificent you are. Greater is the one living inside of us than the one who is living in the world. God, help wake us up to your victory. Help us walk in your victory that we may find ourselves day in and day out in Christ as new creations. And may we, may we be the ones who are willing to partner with you in tearing down the work of the enemy in this city and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.